0: On Monday, Hamas released video footage of three of the Israeli hostages kidnapped on October 7th. One of the three women in the video speaks emotionally to criticize Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and to plead for a ceasefire. It's not clear if she had been told to send that message. The video prompted family members of the almost 240 hostages, including infants, children, and the elderly, to urge the Israeli military, to bring their loved ones home. We ask the prime minister and defense minister to leave no stone unturned until the world knows what they are doing to our children, our families, and all of the hostages, one mother said. These are crimes against humanity, against women, children, and the elderly. These acts are unforgivable. The next day, Tuesday, a series of Israeli airstrikes bombed the densely packed Jambalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. The Israeli Defense Force says it was targeting Ibrahim Biari, one senior Hamas commander said to be responsible for the October 7th attack. The IDF says Biari was at the refugee camp. The Gaza Health Ministry says the strikes killed at least 50 civilians and injured more than 150. At the nearby Indonesia hospital, Dr. Suede Ideas told British news outlet The Guardian that the explosions shook the entire refugee camp. They were just in their homes. They were targeted while they were in their homes, he said. All martyrs, children, women, the elderly. We have no idea what to do. The injured are everywhere. Speaking to CNN's Wolf Blitzer, IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht accused Hamas of hiding, as they do, behind civilians.
1: Israel still went ahead and and dropped a bomb there, attempting to kill this Hamas commander, knowing that a lot of innocent civilians, men, women and children, presumably would be killed. Is that what I'm hearing? That's not what you're hearing, Wolf. We, again, were focused on this commander. It killed many, many Israelis. Uh, we're doing everything we can. these are, It's a very complicated battle space. There could be infrastructure there. There could be tunnels there. Uh, we're still looking into it and we'll give you more data as the hour moves ahead. But you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women, and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of War Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days civilians that are not involved with Hamas, please move south. Sadly,
2: they are hiding themselves within civilian population. And again, we are doing this stage by stage,
1: and we're going to go after every one of these terrorists who was involved in that heinous attack on the 7th of October.
0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At this moment, it may seem impossible to imagine an end to the Israel-Hamas war. But people deeply familiar with the aftermath of terrible conflict insist that, in fact, the war's end must be imagined, must be visualized, and must be planned for now. Because if it isn't, the war's aftermath could be longer and more destructive than the war itself. And how do these observers know? Well one of them worked at the United States State Department in 2003. He led a team charged with planning how to rebuild post-invasion Iraq. And he watched in dismay as that plan was ignored by the Bush administration and invaded Iraq fell further apart.
2: Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed.
1: Um, the read we get on the people of Iraq is there's no question but what they want to get rid of Saddam Hussein, and they will welcome as liberators the United States when we come to do that. Things change. Uh, we had a plan that anticipated, I think, that we could proceed with a occupation regime for much longer than it turned out uh, the Iraqis would have patience for. Their basic approach was that they couldn't really foresee exactly what was needed, so they were going to wait until they got there and then they were going to make recommendations.
3: Everybody agreed that Saddam should go. Everybody would like to have democracy afterwards. Nobody had a clue what the challenges are ahead. We're asking the British
2: and the United States to book the principal system
3: for us, how to go through democracy
2: and the American officials who were up there on the platform didn't have answers. He was working with the wrong Iraqis. We're talking about the Iraqis who brutalized, traumatized this nation for 35 years. Shortly I will issue an order on measures to extirpate Ba'athist and Ba'athism from Iraq
1: forever. Yeah, it got scrapped and all that happened in about a week's period How would you time. feel about that? I thought it was a mistake at the time. By doing that you have made those
3: people part of the problem instead of the making them part of the solution. I don't
1: mean this at all condescending, uh, but when you're teaching a youngster to ride a bicycle, you don't keep your hand on the, on the, the seat the whole time. At some point, you have to take it off.
2: Stuff happens, and it's untidy, and freedom's untidy, and free people are free to make mistakes, and commit crimes, and do bad things. They're also free to to, to live their lives and and do wonderful things. And that's what's going to happen here. What was the plan uh, with regard to a possible negative reaction from the Iraqi people? And also specifically, what was the plan with regard to securing any weapons of mass destruction? I frankly feel we were never given real answers to that. And I have a feeling that it's because there wasn't a serious plan. Uh, And I think at this point
1: we're paying a serious price for it.
0: Tom Warwick. Welcome to On Point, and I wonder if uh, that brings back memories. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yes, Magda, uh, good to speak with you, and yes, it does. I recognize um, individually uh, many of the voices that we've just heard are are friends of mine or people I worked with uh, as we tried to work our way through what was going to happen after Saddam Hussein was eliminated. Uh, It was uh, clearly a very difficult time.
0: Good or bad memories, let me ask.
1: (laughs) Some of both. Um, There were some real heroes and patriots on all sides, on uh, uh, both the U.S. side, the international side, uh, and the Iraqi side. Uh, A great many uh, Iraqis lost their lives, uh, not just during the war, but in the chaos that followed afterwards. Uh, And as I look back, there are, are clearly... Uh, a number of lessons that uh, would, uh, I think, be important for whoever is going to be thinking about post-war Gaza to bear in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, History teaches there have been some good examples and there have been some bad examples. Mm -hmm. And the challenge right now is to come up with something uh, that will will make the sacrifices and suffering uh, that we've already seen and that is yet to come uh, something that really does uh, turn the corner towards a better future for uh, for the peoples of Israel, the Palestinians, and the entire Middle East. Mm.
0: Well, you're listening right now to Thomas Warwick. He's currently a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. But in 2002 and 2003 he worked in the US State Department as I mentioned and he led what was called the Future of Iraq project. And just to jog our memories a little, the Future of the of Iraq project was a State Department initiative, lots of working groups with various experts both US and Iraqi, trying to plan every little thing that would need to be done after the US invasion of Iraq in order to shore up, rebuild, infrastructure of the country and create a functioning democracy there. Now, for those who remember, the Bush administration essentially dumped the Future of Iraq program plan, just threw it out, uh, in favor of giving the lead to the Defense Department and then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. So Tom Warwick, fair summary that your plan and your group's plan was never fully or even partially enacted in Iraq.
1: Well, <clears throat> parts of it were, uh, and it was interesting, the, the things that were done, for example, to stabilize Iraq's currency after the war, uh, uh, that ended up going quite well. Uh, we had brought in experts in economics, uh, Iraqis who had worked at the United Nations. Uh, and they did a superb job, uh, you know, changing Iraq's currency from something that featured Saddam Hussein's picture on it to, to something that had uh, uh, much more acceptance among the Iraqi people. Uh, there were other examples where uh, people that we worked with ended up becoming cabinet ministers, members of parliament, leaders of civil society. Uh, but unfortunately, during the very crucial early months, Uh, uh, there were a number of of really flawed ideas or, indeed, the absence of ideas. uh, And people lost track of what was really essential to do uh, after uh, the Mm. dictatorship of Saddam Mm -hmm. Hussein was was taken down. There were a host of things that should have been done that just weren't.
0: Right. And, you know, uh, in going back and watching and listening to you know the the many 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 hours of publicly available video from that time period. It's not by accident that a, a lot of the the bites I chose there involved questions of where's the plan, what's the plan, because things were changing so often. Ideas were instituted and then thrown out. Debathification um, happened and then didn't quite didn't work at all, um, as Paul Bremer at the time uh, had hoped it would. So we'll, we'll talk more about the importance of having a plan from the beginning in a second. But, but Tom Warwick, I wonder if the first lesson that um, Israel might garner from your experience regarding Iraq some 20 years ago comes from the fact that it seems like there was a v- massive divide in opinion in terms of how to manage post-war Iraq between the Defense Department and the State Department. I mean th- – I think that's that goes without saying. And the administration went with the Defense Department. So having that massive divide in what to do hampers any
1: ability to effectively plan for a post-war scenario, does it not? Uh, it does indeed. And in fact, uh, from what we're seeing so far, I'm watching the Israeli government go through almost exactly the same sequence of steps that the U.S. government uh, went through back in 2002, 2003. Uh, So, for example, uh, initial planning for for post-conflict Gaza uh, looks now to be uh, worked on extensively by the Israeli Defense Forces J-5, their planning directorate. Uh, uh, And the military, which uh, in in advanced societies usually does a great job of, of doing military planning. Uh, always seems to have challenges when it comes to to having the civilians take over. Mm. Uh, And that handoff uh, is what many of us are most concerned about.
0: Tom Warwick, hang on. We have a lot more to hear from you in just a moment. So we'll be back. This is On point. five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, And today, Tom Warwick joins us. He's currently at the Atlantic Council. But in 2002 to 2003, he was at the U.S. State Department heading the Future of Iraq project, which was the State Department's effort at coming up with a post-invasion plan when the United States toppled Saddam Hussein. And given that experience, Warwick has a series of suggestions for the path forward uh, for Israel, the region, and the world at the end. I know it's unimaginable right now, but when the end of the current Iraq-Hamas war comes. Now, um... Tom Warwick, I'd love – we're going to go through some of your suggestions here that you recently published in The New York Times. But I'd love you to couple them with stories uh, from inside the room in 2002 and 2003. Because, for example, one of your suggestions is listen to what Gaza's residents want, that ordinary Gazans must have a say in their future. That brings me right back to, you know, 2003 – when we were hearing things like then Vice President Dick Cheney, who was in that uh, montage we played earlier, say, Oh, well, we've been talking to Iraqis and we are certain that uh, they will greet the United States military as liberators, right? <laughs> that was true <laughs> yeah. for a hot second, maybe, but it was definitely not how the Iraqi people felt. So the arrogance there felt. Dramatic and spectacular then, even more so now. Do you get the sense that Israel, the Israeli leadership, is in any condition at the moment to even think that listening to ordinary Gazans is a worthy thing to do now?
1: Well, some Israelis are. um, uh, Others, obviously, less so. And certainly, uh, the terrorist attacks of October 7 uh, have forever changed uh, the thinking of of millions of Israelis. Uh, And that's one reason why uh, it seems like like post-war Gaza uh, is so far away and and that it will be hard to imagine how to make things better. Uh, And then you have statements by uh, Israeli officials that matched something of what we were hearing from U.S. officials after 9-11 when it talked about uh, a war on terror and eliminating Al-Qaeda. Uh, what, what we also, though, uh, those of us who were working on this on the inside knew uh, that there was no single thing uh, called Iraqi opinion, mm. neither is there a single thing today uh, called Gazan opinion. Um, uh, Hamas has a great deal of support from people inside Gaza, but there are also people inside Gaza who do not support Hamas. It would be a mistake to overstate uh, uh, the influence of either side. The reality is complicated, but it's actually important to understand the reality and not try to reduce it to, to sound bites or bumper stickers because that's what gets you uh, into making in just enormously uh, unrecoverable strategic mistakes. Uh, and so the the thinking that U.S. forces would be uh, greeted by flowers and sweets, uh, as one Iraqi once put it before the war, uh, yeah, there actually were some Iraqis who thought that way, but there were also many Iraqis uh, uh, who regarded the U.S. as an invader.
0: Right. Uh, and And because of the lack of comprehensive planning... Right after the fall of Saddam Hussein, the chaos that that emerged turned many ordinary Iraqis who might have been sympathetic to the United States or, quote unquote, grateful, completely against the U.S., right? They were saying things like, this is your democracy. We don't want your democracy. I wonder, um, we can speak in broad terms, right? Like, like the Iraqi people or the, the people of Gaza, um, which I know you're trying to avoid and I appreciate that. But similarly, I find myself saying Israeli leadership or the Israeli military Equally broad terms, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about if you ever had any interactions with since you were at the State Department with then Secretary of State Colin Powell uh, or the you know President George W. Bush himself with with the Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld or or Dick Cheney one on like one on one or at least in person to get a sense if any of those key leaders was really committed early in the invasion to comprehensive planning for. The day after, if I can put it like that
1: um, everybody had a slightly different view of, of what their priorities were. certainly uh, Secretary Powell, for example, in the the crucial months before the invasion uh, was was focused almost exclusively on winning Security Council authorization for for the invasion that was to come. Uh, that was his top priority, and as we all know, France blocked it in the Security Council. Uh, uh, And so, we never got what was called the second resolution. Um, What happened though was there were several key officials in the Department of Defense who were deeply and personally committed. Uh, to a vision for post-war Iraq that turned out to have been fundamentally flawed. Uh, uh, They very much wanted to believe what some Iraqis were telling them, Uh, and I've got no doubt within Israel uh, there are similar voices today putting forward completely unrealistic ideas uh, for what could be done uh, to end Hamas's terrorist threat to Israel. Um, And there are also going to be Israeli leaders who, I think, have a a deeper understanding of what the challenges are. Uh, I've noticed we've started to hear some some really interesting key phrases uh, uh, from U.S. leaders who are talking to the Israelis. So um, uh, Secretary of State Blinken said at a congressional hearing uh, just the other day uh, that Israelis understand they do not want to occupy Gaza. Um, uh, that is a sign of, of uh, reality, uh, that that's not going to be the best solution uh, from the Israeli standpoint. Uh, but then that leaves the question of, okay, if not Israel, then who? Then what? Who?
0: Yeah. Then exactly. Who? exactly.
1: Uh, and, and, you know, there are very preliminary talks uh, about what that might look like. But the thing I worry about, Magna, is... Um, those those really interesting high-level talks that high-level officials like to have have to be matched by a lot of very serious, very detailed planning for, for what I would call the basics. Uh, one of the things that happened in pre-war Iraq planning uh, was that some of the ideas that were being discussed at high-level meetings were so, I have to say, fun and interesting um, uh, that they simply uh, soaked up all of the time of of high-level decision-makers. And so the military plans got extensive airing. The diplomatic track got extensive discussions. Uh, humanitarian assistance got all the time that it needed. And post-war planning, if it came up, was like three minutes at the end of an hour-and-a-half meeting. That is exactly what gets you into these forever wars and these situations where the failure to plan Adequately ends up crippling what happens afterwards.
0: You just so I want to be sure I heard you correctly that in these meetings, sometimes post-war planning would be almost an afterthought at the end of the meeting.
1: Well, it would be on the agenda. We would get that far, um, but but a host of decisions really have to be made right now by the government of Israel, by governments like the United States, uh, Britain, Germany, France, uh, uh, in the Middle East, uh, and, and getting those decisions talked through and getting people to a place of consensus so that they can then start putting together the money, the people, uh, the equipment, uh, all of the things that are, that are going to be necessary to try to secure the post-war, all of that takes time. Uh, And the idea that, well, we can wait until uh, after the military victory is won is one way to assure that the post-war will not go well. Mm. Uh, And so these things have to get the attention they need right now, uh, even though other uh, subjects have this tendency to dominate high-level policy discussions.
0: So um, we're going to hear from an Israeli in just a moment, uh, but I want to ask you briefly about another one of your suggestions. Uh, it's actually the first one. End Hamas's culture of economic corruption in in yeah. Gaza. And the reason why I wanted to spend a minute on that one is that it seems as if uh, the importance of that also comes straight out of the United States mishandling of post-war Iraq, right? Because there were <laughs> yeah. massive failures there in partnering with uh, Iraqis who um, either would not or could not end uh, you know, I- Iraqis' uh, uh, Iraq's post or Saddam Hussein era history of of corruption, and it just got worse in Iraq as billions of u s. dollars were poured into uh, post-war Iraq. How much do you think that that f- hampered any possibility of faster and more cohesive reconstruction of the company? And do you think that that's a lesson that is urgently needed to learn uh, in the Israel Hamas situation?
1: Oh, absolutely! Um, I was for ten years the Department of Homeland Security Deputy Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism Policy, uh, and people in the United States and even more so in Israel have a deep understanding of the way Hamas rules Gaza. Uh, it is it is corrupt to its core. It's uh, you know everything is in the service of Hamas having its military capabilities and the ability, as we saw on October seven, to carry out truly horrific terrorist attacks, Um, but Hamas controls much of the the budget, the hiring. Uh, uh, Things can't move in many cases without Hamas uh, getting its cut, Uh, uh, and so uh, it's going to be essential from Israel's standpoint uh, that this culture of corruption be ended. Uh, this, has turned, this is going to turn out to be one of the hardest things to do. As we discovered with Iraq, uh, we knew going in, those of us who were involved in, in real post-war planning, uh, knew how deeply corrupt uh, Iraq had been under Saddam Hussein and his family, uh, who had amassed enormous wealth uh, uh, by the way they had structured the entire Iraqi state. Um, and, and, you know, one of the most important things in the real State Department plan that never actually has been made public was the idea of, of coming up with uh, a system that would end that type of corruption. Uh, instead, what happened uh, set up Iraq for what's called the muhasasa system, whereby the political parties control government ministries. Uh, uh and this has has been the subject of numerous demonstrations by the Iraqi people who want to be out from under this system uh it was it was the it, it was not inevitable it was the byproduct of US government decisions uh about how money would be handled within the Iraqi government uh, mm-hmm. this is this is enormously important uh for Israel's long-term mm-hmm. security and for the people of Gaza to have a a more prosperous future uh, and to be able to rebuild that that we get this right.
0: So let me ask you, your question, your suggestions, Tom, include, as I mentioned, end Hamas's culture of economic corruption in Gaza, listen to what the Gazans want, um, as we talked about, change the educational curriculum, find a path for Gazans to write a constitution that leads to a healthier democracy, uh, show Gazans that Israel is prepared to help rebuild the Gaza Strip economically, and border security for Gaza that Israel can live with, and not a siege. Mm -hmm. On paper, these look like uh, sort of hard-won and intelligent suggestions based on your experience. But I've got to ask, I mean, you talked about the disconnect between um, what happens in discussions at, at roundtables versus what's actually happening on the ground and for as long as the israeli military is making decisions like we saw yesterday and sending missiles to a refugee camp uh killing dozens and dozens of people just to you know just to to get one hamas leader as long as it's raising gazan neighborhoods is it not completely ludicrous to think that the people of gaza would would cooperate at all with any Israeli efforts in post-war planning because it's inevitable that they will just see it as a terrible reoccupation. Shouldn't someone other than Israel lead the post-war planning?
1: Well, I mean, the, the, yes is the short answer to that. Um, uh, the question is how the handoff gets made and to whom. Uh, uh, among many people uh, that I know of who are, are who were in government then and are outside government now. Uh, you see a lot of ideas that sound really good on op-ed pages, uh, but would break down the minute you tried to, to put them in practice. Um, uh, some people are saying, well, we can turn, uh, or Israel can turn Gaza over to the Palestinian Authority. Well, the Palestinian Authority uh, has its own problems uh, with people in Gaza, who, after all, voted against uh, uh, the, the party led by the current Palestinian uh, Authority in Ramallah. Um, uh, And so, that's one challenge. Uh, uh, Other people say, well, turn it over to the Gulf Arabs. Um, uh, I have to tell you that the the Arab Gulf countries don't have, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of experts that they could send to Gaza. Uh, They need those experts for their own country. Uh, And and, uh, they don't have people sort of waiting around uh, to do this kind of thing. Uh, uh, The United States would have its own challenges. Uh, uh, I don't think we would be uh, right to be leading any kind of effort for any sustained period. Uh, But these kinds of discussions and decisions have to be made. At the same time, somebody else has to go figure out um, uh, how you're going to to turn the the water and electricity back on. Uh, uh, They're going to have to have an effort. Uh, which we failed at in Iraq in 2003 of preventing strategic looting. Uh, uh, And so somebody has to be assigned that task. I mean, you can go through the whole checklist uh, uh, and realize that each one of these ideas needs needs yeah. you know a hundred page plan to begin to appreciate the magnitude of this effort uh
0: uh-huh. oh, the it's, i'm glad you brought up the looting that took place immediately after the fall of uh, of Saddam Hussein because i recall clearly you know it wasn't just looting the grocery store it was massive looting in, in ministries etc mm-hmm. uh but americans act, acted surprised they acted surprised that so much chaos uh, had been pent up for a long time amongst the Well, no, this uh, wasn't Iraqi chaos. People.
1: No, this actually wasn't chaos. And, and this is hugely important for Gaza. Uh, what happened in Iraq had also happened in Bosnia after the Dayton Accords. Um, there were a number of apartment buildings that were to be turned over to the Bosnian government, uh, and the Bosnian Serbs went in and stripped out all the plumbing to render those buildings uninhabitable. Uh-huh. That was a strategic decision. That wasn't just a bunch of people point, who decided they needed scrap. Metal. Yeah,
0: point taken. Point taken, actually. But therefore, it once again makes it even more dismaying that the United States— Still act in surprise after it happened exactly. in Iraq in two thousand and three. Well, you know, um I'm going to just introduce uh, an Israeli voice Now. We have to take a quick break in a moment, but I definitely want to get him in here just so that folks know that uh, we'll have more to hear from him. Barack Greenapple joins us now from Tel Aviv. He's a former negotiator between the government of Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Barack, welcome to on Point.
3: Hey, Magna, thank you for having me.
0: I do appreciate your patience in listening to what Tom Warwick had to say. We have to take our first uh, our break in just a couple of seconds here. But in a sentence or two, can you tell me if you think any of his suggestions are workable?
3: So, yes, definitely. I mean, we're happy to, to learn from all examples. Um, uh, many things that Tom mentioned, I think, uh, could be relevant in our case. Obviously, drawing parallels is uh, always a bit tricky. But definitely very interesting, and I think we can elaborate on that. So thank you.
0: Okay, so we'll elaborate on that in just a few seconds. We're talking today with Barack Greenapple and with Tom Warwick about what lessons must be learned from the United States post-war experience in Iraq. Now looking at what will happen in the aftermath of the Israel Hamas war. More in a moment. This is on point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. A note about a show we're working on for later this week. It's going to be about anti-Semitism. FBI Director Chris Wray this week testified that threats against Jewish people in the United States are reaching historic levels. And added that while Jewish Americans make up 2.5% of the population, nearly 60% of religious crimes are committed against them. So have you experienced or witnessed this sharp rise in anti-Semitism, especially in the last couple of weeks here in the United States? We want to know what you think. Call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Or better yet, send us a message via the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have that on your phone, just go look for the On Point Vox Pop app. So that's for later this week. Uh, today, we're talking about lessons that Israel must learn or might learn from the United States experience in the lack of post-war planning or effective post-war planning that was put into place after the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. Barack Greenapple, so uh, you're in Tel Aviv. Can you tell me what you think the biggest differences are between what the United States faced and I'll just say it failed at in post-war Iraq versus what Israel and the Palestinian people uh, must contend with, if and when the Iraq Hamas war comes to an end. I mean, the most obvious, biggest difference is that there's a there's a shared border there. But what else does not apply in terms of uh, the U.S.'s Iraq experience?
3: So, thank you, Magna. I think our situation is very different in. From many perspectives, let's say, I mean, we're a different kind of stakeholder, obviously, in this situation, right? And, uh, you know, Israel just experienced the post-trauma on October 7th. It's a day that we will never forget. Um, And I think the Israeli perspective now is mainly focused around how can we secure this border, uh, you know, in a a forward-looking manner, to, to, to make sure that something like this never happens again, not even in a smaller scale. So Israel is a, is a different type of stakeholder in, in this situation and uh, would like to ensure to secure a different interest. I mean, uh, yes, definitely uh, uh, life in Gaza, uh, you know, post-war um, uh, is, is a main issue, is a main concern, could also affect uh, the likelihood of something like this or, or, or a threat... Uh, like that uh, uh, to be uh, formed again in the future. But I think security will will mm. obviously lead.
0: Well, it's clear that one of the things that Tom Warwick is trying to advance now is, uh, is the view that uh, Israel's border security with Gaza is intimately, essentially related to a sense of security within Gaza for the Palestinian people. You cannot really separate the two. Do you think that that truth is... Uh, uh, is adequately understood by Benjamin Netanyahu, Benny Gantz, uh, and De- Defense Minister Yoav Gallant?
3: I think currently they, they understand the situation very well. But again, you know, pre-October 7th, uh, there was an understanding that uh, uh, Hamas is weak. Uh, it, 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 it's deterred. Uh, it, it will not operate or will not try any large operation for, for a host of reasons. Uh, and, and this conception obviously collapsed uh, and, and I think uh, uh, everybody was taken by surprise and, and shock uh, also by the scale of this, uh, uh, of this invasion. Um, and I, I think obviously at the end of this war, uh, we cannot go back to the same situation we, we've been before. I don't know what the reality will look like on the ground, but mm-hmm. from the uh, mindset, standpoint of mindset, we'll be at a very different place of what is possible, what is not possible. Uh, what are we uh, uh, keen to, to allow? Uh, how will this relationship look like from the viewpoint of uh, providing water, electricity, uh, trade, um, other necessities? It's going to look very different, I'm yeah. certain.
0: So, Barack, let me just ask you, um, because we've been hearing this over and over again uh, from, from people, most especially the Palestinian people themselves. It's the idea the assertion that true security for Israel in any post-war situation can only come with the end of occupation.
3: So, I I would say carefully that even now in this situation, uh, you won't find a consensus around that in Israel. Uh, Obviously, uh, uh, the mindset at present is very different. Uh, people are worried, are concerned about uh, about the war, about the final outcome of the war, which is obviously uh, very critical, right, in shaping the reality post-war. Um, and I don't think they're very much uh, uh, concerned or, or engage themselves in in thinking how exactly uh, this reality is gonna look like, or, or or let's say, what are the possibilities? What are the opportunities here? Because we're basically leaking, leaking our wounds. We lost mm-hmm. so many people. Uh, we have uh, 240 hostages still in Gaza. Mm-hmm. You know, women, children, uh, elderly, disabled, uh, and and possibly even more hostages. I don't. I, I'm not sure we have the final number by now. Um, and we will. Uh, we would basically like to make sure that we we see them all coming home. So we have different uh, bigger fish to fry. I would say at this point, I, I, there is a degree of understanding that uh, the the pre October 7th reality cannot continue. But does it lead people necessarily uh, to the conclusion that uh, now is the time to seek uh, a political solution or or, or the likes of it? I I, I don't think uh, we're there just yet. It's very premature.
0: Hmm. Well, Barack, stand by here for just a moment. And Tom Warwick, hang on for a second as well, because I want to bring Hiba Husseini into the conversation for a few minutes here. She's joining us from East Jerusalem, and she served as a legal advisor to the Peace Process Negotiations. Uh, in the Middle East between 1994 and 2008. Hibu Husseini, welcome to On Point. Uh,
2: thank you very much for having me.
0: Can you first tell me a, a little bit about uh, Tom Warwick had mentioned earlier about the centrality of the Palestinian Authority in potential um, post war planning for? Gaza. Uh, do you think the PA is in the position or has the the credibility amongst the Palestinian people themselves to to take a major role here?
2: Um, the Palestinian Authority uh, has lost a lot of its legitimacy and credibility over the years because it couldn't deliver security for its own people and could not find a resolution to this prolonged conflict. So um, to take immediate full, immediate responsibility will be very difficult, because uh, even right now in the West Bank, is uh, the, the PA is not able to do so. Uh, we see the Israeli incursions into the refugee camps every day. The West Bank cities are all uh, shut down uh, by the... Checkpoint, Israeli checkpoint. So, to go into Gaza and assume responsibility will uh, be—it has to have the resources, it has to have the legitimacy, and it has to have the support from the international community. Uh, So that the the PA can play a role as part of a larger group Mm. that would assume responsibility. Uh, uh, I think the the way I would look at it is we divide the the, the issues into timelines and uh, milestones, Uh, following an immediate ceasefire, which I hope would be today rather than tomorrow, given the uh, humanitarian crisis in Gaza. um, We we have to have immediate uh, relief and humanitarian assistance, medical support, water, food, electricity, and so forth. So there has to be planning for this, and the P.A., should and must be part of this plan, uh, along with other uh, relief agencies like the UN, Red Cross, Red Crescent, uh, other internationals. Then, then we will think about uh, the political sphere, the, the step number two. And step number two would be how, how to think about uh, the, the, the structure of the governance in Gaza, um, and the structure uh, and how we can uh, connect, connect the Palestinian Authority to, to Gaza to reassume its role. Because uh, I do not believe in any way that Israel can go back and reoccupy the Gaza Strip mm-hmm. and, and deliver any kind of um, uh, assistance or support or humanitarian assistance or even a horizon for a political resolution in the future.
0: I see. Well, Hiba Husseini, uh, forgive me for having to uh, uh, curtail our conversation because I just have a few minutes left in the program, but I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Barak Greenapple, let me ask you one more question, because it suddenly occurs to me that we've been having, I've been negotiating this entire conversation here uh, with the undercurrent of a presumption that Israel is successful in its stated goal. Its immediate stated goal, which is to eradicate Hamas from the Gaza Strip, um, I wonder if, in the event that Israel does not achieve that, which is, I would say, somewhat likely, given that it's not just the leaders of Hamas, which uh, which are at issue here, but the uh, uh, the forces and the ideas. Uh, that animate Hamas, which you can't just sort of, you can't bomb that out of existence. So if some sort of Hamas influence uh, survives and persists in Gaza amongst the Palestinian people, how does that change or have an impact to what the post-war planning has to look like?
3: So, so, I agree with you. It's, it's really hard to predict at this point uh, how the day after is going to look like precisely. And, you know, we can build scenarios right now, we can try to game it out, but it's all built, uh, it's all, you know, to be honest, it's all based on very, very strong assumptions. So, you remove one assumption and the whole scenario or model collapses. So, uh, I think the hosted situation will matter a lot. Um, also... Uh, the degree of success of the of the ground operation, but again, the, the ground operation doesn't happen in a vacuum. There, there's the hostage situation, which obviously uh, is a main shaper of of everything that's happen, happening nowadays. Um, and I, I don't think it's only Hamas. I mean, there's uh, Islamic Jihad as well, uh, and uh, the Fronts and Shuhada' aqsa uh, and other organizations. So uh, there are many factions and armed people in Gaza. Uh, and uh, we, we're not only talking here about military Hamas, there's a whole Hamas system, mm-hmm. right? And people estimate between 80,000 and uh, 100,000 uh, uh, people who are affiliated with Hamas in different roles in, uh, within their system. So what do you do with these people, right? I mean, you have to do like a de-Hamasization uh, of the Strip. Uh, it, all of these questions are, are super complex. I mean, who who would be the negotiating, negotiating partners? What would be the structure? How will uh, uh, Gazan's voice be heard? Uh, who will be the representatives, and what level of support will they receive? So, so many questions. At the, questions at this point. I think it's really the time to uh, to uh, raise all the important and and uh, interesting questions now. So we have to ask ourselves ourselves a lot about each scenario and be completely honest with ourselves uh, about what is realistic and what is less so. I mean, and and so far all the uh, scenarios that I heard, all the models for the uh, post-war planning, uh, I mean, can I tell you now that uh, even one of them sounds um, completely, uh, you know, implementable and uh, even manageable or, or sustainable uh, once established? I can't, I'm afraid I can't say that. So um, it, it's very hard to know at, at this point, uh, how will that look like? But maybe to, to answer your question a bit more accurately. so. Obviously, things are going to change. You know, Israel was uh, was ready to provide natural gas to Gaza, right? So they can, uh, uh, the gas for Gaza project, so they can triple and quadruple their electricity generation. Uh, uh, it was ready to uh, supply mm. more water, uh, increase the volume of trade, uh, allow more workers to come to work daily in Israel. So things were moving kind of in a, in a positive direction. I, I won't say that uh, uh, there weren't any problems. There were obviously, but... Uh, uh, there were some good prospects, I believe, yeah. and and now none of that would be possible. And we we have to. I mean, it's going to be a very different reality mm. in terms of the relations between uh, Israel and the Gaza Strip.
0: Uh huh. Well, Barak Greenapple, former negotiator between the government of Israel and the Palestinian Authority, joining us today from Tel Aviv. Thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Tom Warwick, I want to spend the last few minutes of the conversation uh, with you because so much of the language that we've just heard over the course of the hour, I mean, it does so it sounds so strikingly similar to um, two thousand and three Iraq and the United States. I mean, Barack Greenapple just talked about the idea of, you know, is dehammosification possible? Of course, that immediately sprung to mind debathification in Iraq, which backfired in the United States uh, faces. Uh, uh, Terribly. Yes. So, so with that in mind, Tom, I just want to play one last clip and get a thought from you on it. Um, it's from Kanan Makiya. You know him well. He's a respected Iraqi scholar and dissident. And back in two thousand two, two thousand three, he provided much of the moral reasoning used by the Bush administration to justify the Iraq War. Makia ended up bitterly disappointed in both American and Iraqi failures that dragged on for years and years after the invasion. But back in 2003, he told PBS's Frontline that he was hopeful, and he knew what was at stake. This
3: is a huge engagement. American prestige is at stake, American credibility is at stake, and American commitment to... Its own values, its own sense of what it's all about is at stake here. And uh, the benefit will be that the rest of the Middle East will suddenly have something upon which to cement itself, a hope for the future, which it doesn't have at the moment,
0: Tom Warwick, obviously, even though all that was at stake, post-war iraq was it was a deadly and tragic failure. In this whole conversation, other than your bullet points, I haven't yet heard anyone say, you know, it's realistic for us to to find another path to do a Marshall plan for the Gaza Strip. So what do you think is thats is truly at stake if if the world can't get together and achieve that for the Palestinian people?
1: Uh, so let me end this on a, on a positive note. if If we reflect on uh, what was done for post-war planning for Germany, and Japan. Uh, post-war planning on Germany started in the United States in early 1943, uh, for Japan a little bit after that. They had two years, uh, and they had, uh, you know, the the uh, U.S. Army and, and military uh, uh, available, which obviously we don't have here. But if you look at the, the democratic, prosperous countries of Germany and Japan today, Uh, It really shows that transformational change is possible, but it takes time, it takes resources, it takes planning, uh, and all of these things will pay dividends in the end. There is some hope we will come out of uh, this horrible suffering uh, that Israelis suffered and and what's happening in Gaza today uh, with with better lives for everyone. But it is essential that we plan, resource, Mm -hmm. Uh, And stay with this in order for the better outcome to be realized.
0: Well, Tom Warwick, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. This is On Point.